0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this episode is going to be returned to the more regular format of the podcast. This is going to be a single episode covering a terrible crime and its outcome. And sometimes the cases start out small, and then they get bigger. And sometimes they don't, and there's just enough for one episode. So this was a case that caught a lot of media attention. I wasn't sure how many episodes it was going to take to cover it. But surprisingly, there actually wasn't that much out there in the form of details. So this will be a single episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much. And Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In June of 1775, a party of frontiersmen camped along Elkhorn Creek in what would become north-central Kentucky. Word reached them of the battles of Lexington and Concord, which signified the start of the Revolutionary War, and the party of adventurers named the location they had found Lexington. Soon a fort was erected at the site, and it offered sheltered half-acre lots inside the fort walls for homesteads and five acre plots of land outside the walls for settlers to farm. The fort was meant to protect the settlers from attacks from the British and the Native Americans. The town grew rapidly and by 1833, Lexington, Kentucky had 7,000 people living within its area. A devastating cholera outbreak claimed over 500 lives in two months and the massive outbreak was due to overcrowding and a lack of clean water options. Slavery was legal in Kentucky at the time, and the influx of slave labor to work the tobacco fields was a contributing factor to the overcrowding and poor living conditions. Then in 1849, cholera struck the town again. The disease would actually kill Robert S. Todd, Mary Todd Lincoln's father, which was Abraham Lincoln's father-in-law. But the city would recover and grow over the years. It's now home to over 320,000 people, and it's known as the horse capital of the world. The large lawns are made up of mostly famous Kentucky bluegrass, and the warm summers and moderately mild winters make it a great city to get out and enjoy one of the many great bourbon distilleries or craft breweries in the area. And to a 22-year-old woman, a mother of four who had just given birth to twins a month prior, a night out on the town with her friends was just what she needed to relax and escape the demands of young motherhood for an evening. Savannah Spurlock was born on February 5, 1996 in Richmond, Kentucky. She graduated from Madison Central High School in 2014 and went on to attend Eastern Kentucky University. Savannah gave birth to her first son shortly after high school and another son two years later. She had just given birth to twin boys in the spring of 2019 when her mother agreed to watch her four young boys so that she could enjoy a night out on the town in Lexington. It was January 4th, 2019 and the night started out as planned. Savannah drove her mother's car to a friend's house, picked up a friend, and then they drove to a third friend's house. They left Savannah's mom's car at this friend's house and all rode together to head out to the bars. One of the friends left early, but Savannah and her remaining friend got into an argument and Savannah stayed out alone. She had just given birth to twin boys one month prior and had a two and a four year old boy and was likely running on little sleep and was suffering from a lack of social life. Being 22 years old with four children under the age of four, it was unlikely that any of her friends her age were dealing with the stress she had in her life. A lot of her friends could probably go out at any time they wanted and this was a rare occasion for her. I couldn't find out what the argument with her friend was about but if I had to speculate maybe her friend either had to work the next day or just wanted to leave the bar and, and go home wanted to call it a night and Savannah wanted to stay out and get the most out of her one night out. Regardless of the reason how she ended up alone she was still trying to have a good time and eventually met up with three guys in the mid-20s that were out drinking. Savannah left the bar with these three guys. I couldn't find anywhere in the research if these guys were known to her, but it didn't seem like they were, and in a city of over 320,000, it's likely she just met them at the bar. It was after 2.30 a.m., and the bars had likely done last call, and she didn't have a ride home, so these guys likely offered her a ride back to their place for an after party. On the way to the house, she FaceTimed her mother around 3 a.m. while she was riding in the car. Her mother would later say she didn't recognize the men in the car and wasn't thrilled that Savannah was riding around with three strange men, but she also said Savannah didn't seem threatened at all and appeared to be having a good time. Savannah promised her mom that she'd be home later that morning. The next morning, Ellen Spurlock, Savannah's mom, woke up and Savannah hadn't made good on her promise. Savannah was a good mother, and since nights out were were a rare occasion, it was even more alarming when she hadn't returned by midday. She would never stay away from her boys, especially the twin babies, for that long. Ellen made the decision to call the police and report Savannah missing. This would start the police investigation, and they tracked down the friends that Savannah had been with the previous evening. They told investigators the name of the bar where they had last seen her. Interviews with employees and surveillance video would show Savannah and the three unknown men leaving the bar shortly after 2 a.m. The video was good enough quality to get a license plate, and within days, investigators were making the 40-mile drive south to a house outside of Lancaster, Kentucky, where a 23-year-old man named David Sparks lived. They wanted to talk to David and the two other men that left the bar that night with Savannah, and presumably... These were the men in the car with her when she FaceTimed her mother. Two of the men were not named in any documents I could find but would later tell investigators that after they got to David's house they sat around drinking a little and Savannah was starting to pass out from alcohol. David was touching her inappropriately and they decided to leave. One of the men commented to the other if they thought it was a good idea to leave her there with David but they both felt that David wouldn't harm Savannah. When the men found out about Savannah being reported missing, one of them reached out to David and told him to be honest with the police about what happened to Savannah after they left. Subsequent checks of the men's cell phone pings backed up their story that they had left a short time after arriving at the home and they were believed to not have any involvement in Savannah's disappearance. The focus of the investigation now turned to David Sparks. So we'll pause here just before we get into what David told investigators, so we can kind of break down some of the stuff in the story so far. I know one of the cases I covered, there was some comments about the, the person thought I was victim blaming, and I'll just say it right here: I don't victim blame, and if I if it comes across that way, I apologize. That's not my intent at all, and I will try harder in the future to go out of my way to not uh, victim blame. So. In this circumstance, I've, I've mentioned several times, this is a, a young mother of four young boys. I had, or I have three boys. They were all young at one point, And I think the most I had was three under the age of five at once. And so I can't imagine four under the age of four. Uh, just, just absolutely the, the demands that are on you as a parent, especially in her case, a single parent, is they're, they're astronomical. So I'm not faulting her at all for wanting to go out and have this, this night out. We all need it, or we, we need that time away. We need the the, the us time, even as parents, even people with responsibilities. So in no way am I blaming her. And she's, she's, again, she's a 22 year old. This is what they do. You know, her college got interrupted, I'm guessing, by the demands of, of motherhood, uh, especially that many children under that age, it's going to be very difficult to go to college. So she took the break to focus on being a mother. I give her a lot of credit for that. And again, she's out. She this is her one night that she gets to be like all the other twenty two year olds. So she goes out to a bar, gets in an argument with a friend. It happens, alcohol's involved, and then these guys. It, seem like decent guys she's obviously chatting them up with up with them she doesn't have a ride home at this point she doesn't have a friend left there and I, again i'm not blaming the friend either i mean this stuff happens uh but the reality of it is you know these guys are going to offer her a ride she's gonna, gets a chance to extend her night out and continue to have fun and and she takes them up on that offer and she's knows enough to facetime her mom on the drive to just kind of give her an update and. I mean, we've all been, at least most of us, have been drunk enough at some point to make those drunken texts, drunken FaceTimes, drunken whatever, and in this case, she's being responsible, letting her mom know, I'm still out, but I promise I'll be home. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not the case here. So the one question I did have, there's two from looking at the research, is it did say they got a license plate. I assume that came from the video uh, because they did have pretty decent video of savannah leaving with these guys my experience is it's very rare to have cctv footage outside especially at night that's able to capture plates but then again there's there's certain areas of town that the, the cctv cameras are better depends if this is downtown or the bars are they're these areas are usually well lit at night Uh, so it's possible that that's how they got it it's also possible they had an eyewitness that wasn't listed in any of the media reports that wrote down a license plate for this guy but however they do they figured out now the one question i did have is i think they didn't end up going down to this property or maybe yeah i think it was like four or five days before they went down there to talk with this guy, and I don't know what the delay was. And again, that might be where it took them that long to figure out who these guys were and and to get a license plate. So there is some question as to why it wasn't an immediate identification and they went down to talk to him, but it's still in a pretty short amount of time they're able to to track these guys down and they're able to chat with Two of the guys that are very cooperative with police, very forthcoming with information, and they're saying, yeah, we went to the house afterwards. We were still drinking. She's starting to, to go in and out of consciousness from the drinking. David's touching her inappropriately. I'm assuming that that made them uncomfortable or maybe they were just ready to call it a night anyway. Now I will question the fact that one of them is concerned enough to ask the other one if they thought it was a good idea to leave savannah there with him they would say afterwards that they thought at the time that it was a safe thing to do clearly that they thought she was in danger they hopefully wouldn't have left her there but it it does obviously frustrate a lot of people to hear that this inappropriate touching of a woman who's passing out from alcohol is going on right in front of them and their decision is to leave her there with him knowing that something bad is likely gonna happen so yeah they're gonna get some and they're gonna get catch some flack from the pub- public just on on the optics of that whole situation but police the long the long and short of it is that police have ruled, these two guys out now and so now their focus is hundred percent on David so when investigators talked to David he would tell them that after his friends left he offered Savannah to sleep in his bed while he would sleep on the couch he said at some point in the early morning hours Savannah woke him up to ask him the address for the house David said he gave her the address and assumed she was texting it to someone to come pick her up and he went back to sleep he said when he woke up she was gone Investigators had no evidence to prove otherwise, but stated they didn't believe David from the start because his voice was emotionless and he had what they called a cold stare. And this is something that a lot of people will say if they know a police officer or sheriff's deputy or an investigator of some sort, a federal officer, in their life that these tend to be human lie detectors and that's for a couple reasons one is in my 17 years as a cop i probably could count the number of times i felt people were telling me the whole truth on one hand and the number of times that people lied to me was in the thousands so police officers get used to people lying to them and sometimes it's over the stupidest stuff that doesn't even matter but they just feel like they have to bend something a little bit to, to try to get a response or to try to change the story a little bit. It's just, it's very rare. So police officers, it's almost as if they get just so used to it that that they can just tell obviously when somebody is lying because it's, it's what they see. And then it's those rare times when somebody's telling the truth that actually kind of sticks out of their mind. But in this case, it's, it's, what we've talked about i guess in the watts case with christopher watts it's some of those subconscious indicators of lying uh, we talked about in the the watts case chris watts using saying things three times using using the number three the inability to recall details we talked about that in the harold henthorne case or changing details and then in this case they're referring to like the improper absent or inappropriate emotion that people will show during a interrogation and when I say that there's obviously the disclaimer that we've used before of everybody responds to a stressful or unexpected situation differently so you can't pull out you know the the procedure book and say okay if this person appears to be crying even though they shouldn't be that means they're guilty no everybody's different but there's just certain circumstances where the person's behavior, their, their emotions, their speech patterns, everything doesn't match up with the situation the way that you would expect a quote unquote normal person or an innocent person to respond. And sometimes this is getting angry when they shouldn't be angry. Sometimes it's crying when they shouldn't cry. There's a lot of times when people cry and can't produce tears. It's an indication that they're forcing the emotion there. So it's all these different things that when police officers are doing an interview or interrogation of a suspect, they're paying attention to all of this stuff. And when they're talking to David, they're talking about this emotionless, flat response. And some people are emotionless and flat. A lot of people, if their background is in engineering or IT or mathematics, I'm not saying all people, but some of these people have a very emotionless or flat personality to them and so again it's not a catch-all but they're just they're getting a feeling as they're talking with David that what he's telling them what he's saying happened isn't the truth just based on on his response to their questions now, As police are focused on David Sparks, Savannah's mother was dealing with the negative side of a media frenzy when a case goes viral. Ellen Spurlock began getting emails that indicated her daughter had been kidnapped and she needed to pay a ransom in money, gift cards, or bitcoin. Ellen was not only frustrated by the inhumane nature of the fraud, she would later state that fraudsters only wanted a few thousand dollars and she couldn't believe anyone would expect her to think Savannah's life or any human life was only worth a few thousand dollars. And this is one of those things that that drives me insane when it comes to these fraud uh, situations. I used to take a lot of fraud reports as a police officer from mainly elderly people that would receive the phone call that their grandson is in prison in Mexico and they needed to get iTunes gift cards or now it's Steam cards and send them the codes and then he could get out of prison and they prey on that vulnerability and in situations like this where a case goes viral there's positive sides of it where you get the word out to a lot of people they are out there looking for for savannah there's a lot of times organized searches that have large turnouts because of this media coverage and the social media explosion that occurs during one of these cases so yeah there's a lot of positives that come out of it but then these are the negatives is that people see a vulnerable situation and they try to take advantage of it now most of the time these are people that are overseas uh, in in countries that are known for fraud scams and they have zero connection to anything that's going on in the case. But when a case goes viral enough that it hits CNN or Fox news or anything like that, kind of, and that hits that world stage, BBC news, that's one of these things that it doesn't take long for these fraudsters to find information about the family. And then a lot, cause a lot of the times these, these family members are jumping on Facebook and putting their information out there for people to contact them if they have information that opens the door for these pe- people intending to commit fraud to reach out and go after these people. And I know Ellen said in this case, like they only wanted a few thousand dollars. Well, that's how it always starts, too. They're not going to f- come out and say the, the old put a $100,000 in a briefcase and drop it on the park bench thing they're going to get them for a thousand dollars worth of steam cards and then the next day it's okay well now you get two thousand dollars of itunes cards and now we need three thousand and they just keep going and keep going until the person's bank account is drained or until the person catches on that it's a fraud because very few people will just fork over 50 grand 100 grand 250 grand just because they get an email from somebody they're, they're trying to they're fishing and they're trying to to bait that hook and get that person to start sending the money. So, just again, a couple notes from that. And please, if you ever feel like you're in a situation where things don't feel right, if somebody's reaching out to you via email or your cell phone and a text message or whatever it may be that you owe money or there's a situation in which it can be resolved, and the resolution is to send some form of electronic payment now, Bitcoin steam cards whatever it may be don't do it it's a scam it's a fraud and you're not gonna ever get your money back and the police are not gonna be able to catch the people doing this as I said they're usually overseas it's better just to delete that and they will stop because again they're just fishing they cast their line out they try to catch a fish if they don't they cast it out again they're not going after you again they'll try a new spot Um, so again just my two cents on frauds but because it came up in this case, I saw a news article about Savannah's mother being targeted for the fraud. I thought it would be a good time to, to mention that. While police are apt to ignore these frauds and these threats, they do need to be investigated and ruled out, which unfortunately takes valuable time and resources away from the actual investigation. Meanwhile, on January 22nd, almost three weeks after Savannah was reported missing, police obtained a search warrant for David Sparks' home and the family property. Now, the details of the search are fuzzy at best. Investigators reveal they found signs of walls that have been cleaned on the bottom half and possible blood spatter patterns. The walls that have been cleaned look like only the bottom half of the wall had been cleaned and the blood spatter was found in David's room's closet door. So this gives us a chance to talk about blood spatter a little bit. Um what people don't realize often is that murder scenes especially if blood is going to be involved whether that be a stabbing a shooting or whatever it may be these scenes get very messy very fast and a lot of the times in whether it be crimes of passion or any type of unplanned or disorganized killing the criminal doesn't realize how messy this is going to be and i know we just talked about it in the chester pogue case that they the suspects didn't want to slit his throat in the one suspect's house because they realized how messy it would be so when given time to think about it i guess sometimes criminals realize that it's not best but either if there isn't time to think about it or they just don't care at that moment they're caught up in the passion there's going to be a mess if blood is involved in the crime scene and that can be anything from blunt force trauma to a stabbing and the result is that you when they come back and look at their room they realize they have to clean this up and instead of cleaning the entire wall again criminals tend to be lazy we as humans tend to do the least work, amount of work possible you know if i'm going to clean walls in my house which is something i i don't know that i've ever really done except when i painted i'm going to clean the whole wall top to bottom i'm not going to just clean half of it because first off what's the point I understand if you have little kids and they're running up and smearing stuff on what they can reach, I guess maybe that would be a reason why you'd only clean half the wall. But most people are just going to clean the entire wall. And so cleaning half the wall is suspicious in and of itself. And the one thing people don't think of when they are obviously committing a murder or trying to clean up after committing a murder is what we call void areas. So these are areas that may have changed or the the pattern may have changed since the the blood was deposited in the spatter pattern so this is very common with doors closets movable objects such as like laundry hampers or anything like that where the object was in place in one position when the murder occurred and then that object has been moved and oftentimes during the cleanup Because things are now different than when the the murder occurred, the offender doesn't look the same way at that object as they would if it was still in place when the murder occurred. And as a result, oftentimes things are missed. So closet doors, um, again, garbage cans, anything that could be in a a place and then moved. uh, These are the void areas that, that oftentimes will produce evidence that the suspect will miss during their cleanup and in this case there's there's this blood smear on the bedroom closet door and the blood test does come back um, to savannah positive for savannah so they're also going to find a letter by david's nightstand that spoke about how he had a dark side i'm not going to read the whole letter it's pretty disturbing but basically the the short version of it is that he admitted that he was a monster and he said there specifically his exact words were, he wouldn't care a bit to squeeze the last breath out of a human being or plunge a knife in their chest and smile about it. And the investigators would say that this notebook that this was written in, it was like the first page of a notebook and the notebook looked new and the writing looked new. So they actually think that he wrote this after uh, he killed Savannah. And when asked about it, David would say he wrote the letter because he was depressed and had anger issues, but the letter was not relevant to Savannah. I mentioned that the police get a search warrant for David's house. He was living at a different location, and he's 23 years old at this time, so he's moved out of his parents' house. And I don't know if he's renting this place or he has his own place, whatever it is, he's... On the other side of town from his parents farm his parents farm and property is out kind of the middle of nowhere uh, outside of town and so their investigators are also going to get a search warrant for his parents house and they're going to search the house find nothing there they're going to search the yard find nothing there but an investigator would later say that while they were searching the yard which has this kind of garden area on it david seemed to stare at a particular part of the ground near a strawberry patch and this is another thing, like I mentioned, the, these subconscious indicators that when police are searching, like a lot of the times this will happen if you're searching a vehicle or even if you're searching a person, um, they'll stare at, they'll, they'll give away where something might be inside of that car or on them because subconsciously their brain is so worried about you finding something there that it actually overrules their thought process of "don't look at that," because we don't we don't want to show the the police what I'm where I hid something. It's actually the the defense mechanism of looking at that area to make sure that police don't find something or that you see the police find something there, or however you want to say it. That defense mechanism is so strong that people end up just staring at. The area they don't want you to to find something from and so this investigator notes this but at the same time I'm guessing because it's kind of this garden or, or dirt patch that it maybe didn't have any indicators that, at that time that anything was out of place and this is a large property so they just kind of did a quick search of the property and then moved on so without any solid evidence that anything happened to Savannah at the Sparks home, investigators backed off and followed up on the mountain of of tips and leads that had come pouring into the investigative task force. And when I say nothing of solid evidence, yes, I understand that there's Savannah's blood was found in the closet or on the closet door. But we're talking a very small amount of blood, and it's not as if David's denying the fact that savannah was ever there he's saying that savannah was there he's saying that savannah slept in his bed and so just on that alone you're not going to be able to say that anything terrible happened to her that that you can prove because you can cut your finger you can get a nosebleed Uh, there's a variety of different ways where you can end up depositing blood inside of a place that you're known to be that doesn't automatically indicate that you were murdered. Now, there are more circumstances of this than the fact that Savannah's missing and hasn't been seen and hasn't talked to anybody. So yes, that is going to be used by the investigators to continue to believe that David is their number one suspect. But in terms of being able to use that, they've already gotten search warrants. They've already gone at every angle they can think of. Just finding the blood there is not going to be the the end all to this investigation they need to find where savannah is and so my guess is they're going to back off and start doing surveillance on david to see if he goes to check the area in which he dumped the body they're going to try some other methods because at this point they've exhausted the search warrants and every other thing that they can think of they're pretty convinced that only david's going to know where savannah is and it's just, now it's just a waiting game. But in the meantime, they're gonna to continue to do searches. They did aerial searches. They searched nearby landfills and disturbed areas, but no single tip or lead produced anything valuable for the investigation. Then all the waiting pays off. They get a call on J- July 10th, which is six months after Savannah went missing. David Sparks' father called his attorney to discuss something he had found. While digging in an area of the strawberry patch, Mr. Sparks was hit by a terrible odor and found some plastic bags. Knowing his son had possible involvement in the case of Savannah, he called his attorney, who likely advised him the only course of action to prevent further legal complications was to call the police. And this is one of those things where the attorney's not going to tell him, oh, just put the dirt back on and we'll just pretend like you never found that because lawyers can't give their clients... A, vice that involves breaking the law. So at this point, the attorney can do everything he can to try to prevent further evidence from being found, such as making sure that David or his father don't say anything to the police other than, hey, here's this body in in the yard. But as for the actual discovery, if you've defined human remains on your property and you don't call the police, now you're opening yourself up to further legal action. So the attorney is going to con or tell mr sparks to call the police i don't remember if it was the attorney himself or mr sparks to contact the police but however it was investigators arrive on scene and conduct a clandestine grave scene examination and savannah's body was buried only 19 inches deep at the deepest and had been wrapped in plastic garbage bags and a rug her hands and feet had been bound by tape and she was said to have been in an unnatural position and was found without any clothing now clandestine graves what that means is any grave that's not designed like a cemetery grave so it's going to be a quick shallow usually shallow grave uh, dug to try to hide a body now clandestine graves can be in this case six months old and in some cases they can be 600 years old or older and investigating one of these clandestine graves. Now, in this case, we have a missing female, and she's in black plastic garbage bags and a rug. So you're going to immediately assume this is a modern burial, and and you're also going to have the fact that there's the fresh, terrible smell of decaying flesh. So this is a pretty, quote-unquote, fresh grave. Whereas sometimes you know where i live uh, a couple cities away there's actually a, a native american burial ground park where they found several of these burial mounds now those aren't necessarily clandestine graves but there's always a chance that if you owned property that abutted to this park and you're out one day digging up your garden or whatnot that you could come across a Unmarked one of these mounds or just a single clandestine grave and then you're going to have a forensic archaeologist is going to need to come out and examine that grave because once a body has gone skeletal it's very difficult just from looking at it to tell whether that body is five years old 50 years old 500 years old and so you're going to need a forensic archaeologist that's going to look at different aspects of the grave itself, especially any artifacts found in or near the grave to try to date that. And a better example would be if you live somewhere along the Oregon Trail and you're a farmer and you're out in your field and one day you come across a grave. Now that grave could be somebody who was killed 10 years ago in a murder and somebody dug a shallow grave and buried that person especially if they were naked and didn't have any artifacts with them or that could be somebody who died on the oregon trail after succumbing to a disease or an injury and the only thing they could do is dig a really shallow grave and put up a makeshift marker that by now would have likely been destroyed and so you need to have somebody come in to determine whether or not you have a homicide victim that needs further investigation, or whether you've got a just an unmarked grave of somebody from 100, 200 years ago. So these clandestine grave uh, investigations can be anything from an archaeological find to a true crime find it just depends on what they find and, and again sometimes it's pretty obvious because you're going to look at the clothing if it's modern clothing with them if they have an id with them that's modern anything like that that's found in the grave with the person it's pretty quickly going to be determined to be l- linked to foul play whereas you know if you're finding period clothing from the 1800s if you're finding uh, you know no clothing with the person and artifacts that indicate this is, you know, 300, 400 years old. You know, you are pretty quickly gonna figure that out, but you're gonna need uh, either somebody who's trained in clandestine grave operations and likely somebody who as who's a forensic uh, archaeologist to come in and take a look at that point. But police now have a solid link and believe that on the evening Savannah disappeared after David's friends left, David killed Savannah drove her body to her family's property, buried her in a shallow grave and returned home, cleaned up his house the best he could but missed Savannah's blood on his closet door and then called his sister to inquire about buying another rug to replace the one he had used to transport and bury Savannah's body. David's sister would confirm with police that David contacted her the day after Savannah was last seen asking where he could buy a replacement rug for his room. Walmart video and register information shows him purchasing a replacement rug that same day. David turned himself into the police around the same time Savannah was found and he was arrested without incident. No information could be found about any information provided by David Spark to the police at that time. While awaiting awaiting trial procedures, a jailer searched David's cell and found four drawings of women. One drawing showed the woman bound, and these drawings were turned over to the police. So before we get into his plea deal here and and discuss that, we like to talk about victimology and motive a lot on here, and the victimology in this case, as I mentioned, there's, I'm not victim blaming Savannah at all. However, she did have what would be considered probably a low risk style victimology. She's a mother of four. She's got every reason to to not disappear or not be abducted, except she just ran into the wrong person that night. So while her, her risk was low, if you look at the behavior that night, I guess you could call it risky behavior. I'm not saying that it's her fault. It's, she's 22. She's consumed alcohol. That's lowers your inhibitions that's just what you do and and she by no means has any fault in the fact that she was she was uh killed but what i'm saying here is when you look at the victimology and look at the fact that she went home with you know three strange guys to a place she wasn't familiar with with no other friends or anything around her it did increase the risk that something was going to happen to her and You combine that with the motive here which just based on what the the two guys said before they left that david was touching savannah inappropriately you would likely jump to the conclusion that this is a a sexually motivated crime now does it have to be no unfortunately savannah's body is going to be so decomposed at the point at which by the time it's found that they're not actually going to be able to determine a lot of what happened to her just before her death or even the, the cause of her death. So we don't know a lot about what happened to Savannah that night. So motive is a little unclear and I'm just reading between the lines here to speculate that it was either a situation where he tried to force himself upon Savannah and she fought him or she started to fight him off and he became angry Or it may have been that his fantasy the entire time was to kill a woman and this was his opportunity because it was a woman he didn't think could be traced back to him. Again, I'm I'm speculating here, but with the drawings found in the room of of the binding, it it definitely seems like there was this control slash sexual aspect to his crimes and likely he would have continued to commit crimes had he not been caught. In this case and he did realize he was being followed i remember he, some seeing some text messages from him to his friends telling him that he thinks his phone's tapped they're following his car everywhere so i'm sure they were doing some surveillance on him and he probably did see that a few times so maybe that prevented him from doing this again or doing this to anybody else but likely had he not been caught and arrested at some point he likely would have re-offended. In December of 2020, David Sparks pled guilty to murder and tampering with physical evidence and abuse of a corpse. As a part of the plea deal, he avoided life without parole and was instead sentenced to 50 years in prison for the murder and five years for abuse of a corpse, and those will run concurrently. As a result, he will be eligible for parole in 2040 at the age of 45. Although the plea deal avoided an emotional trial, there were many question the leniency of the sentence. The prosecutors defended the plea stating that in order to obtain a longer sentence in a trial they would have had to prove there were aggravating circumstances and they didn't feel they could do that beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is where things get interesting and I'm, I'm starting to learn that I need to investigate every state's laws a little bit better when I'm, I'm doing these cases because in Minnesota there's different levels of murder so we have murder in the first second and the third degree and then we have a manslaughter charge and a manslaughter first degree manslaughter second degree and each of them are designed to cover a, a specific events surrounding each of those murders and so in order to charge somebody with that first degree murder you just have to have the premeditated side of it and then there's some other factors, but basically there's kind of guidelines as to where to charge somebody. In Kentucky, as far as I can tell, there's just one murder charge. In Kentucky, as far as I can tell, there's just one true murder charge, and then they have two manslaughter degrees, and then they have a reckless murder and a vehicular murder. But the murder charge itself in reading it, the, the, the actual statute, which is I think from like 1984, it's not very specific other than that murder is a capital offense and it's with intent to cause death death of another and that really makes me question again how prosecutors really go after people for murder in Kentucky because it almost seems like you have to prove that they intended to kill somebody and if you can't then it falls under one of the lesser murder charges And I think that's what the prosecutor was trying to say here is that because of the condition of the corpse and the fact that they couldn't even tell really what killed her, if they take it to trial, it's their job to convince the jury that David Sparks, by his actions and his actions alone, with intent, killed Savannah. And David going to trial, his lawyers could just say, yeah, Savannah died, but she died because they were goofing around with sex and an, an accident happened. Anything other than an intentional death, if they if the prosecution can't convince the jury that the death was intentional, he could be charged or could be found guilty of a lesser crime in Kentucky, and it drops dramatically from murder down into the manslaughters and the reckless homicide. So if the prosecution can't convince a jury of the the murder charge, then not only is he not doing the 50 years and out with 20 after parole, he's probably looking at 20 to 25 years and being out after 8 to 10, somewhere around there. So it was one of those things where just because of the way their law is written, I really don't like it. And I'm sure prosecutors and law enforcement doesn't like it either there, but they took the chance that, Hopefully he won't make parole after 20 years and instead will be kept in prison closer to that 50-year time span. A lot of factors are to come into it when they go forward for parole. It's whether they're remorseful about their crime, their behavior during their incarceration. So if he presents at the parole board in 20 years as a model prisoner, And he's remorseful and everybody feels he's been rehabilitated. There's a chance he's out again. My fear is that if that happens, we're gonna have another Brittany Drexel case where a guy gets out of prison way too early and then takes another young woman's life and everybody is standing on top of whatever they can screaming, why did you let him out? So hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully he spends the next 40 to 50 years behind bars and by the time he gets out My hope is that he's rehabilitated to the point that he doesn't victimize anybody else. I'd rather have just seen him thrown into life behind bars without without any parole because I think he's an obviously extremely dangerous person that will likely reoffend, but we'll just have to see, I guess. That is it for the case of Savannah Spurlock. I don't really have a hero for this I know I try each time to find somebody in the case that really sticks out as this person who went above and beyond whether it be one of the investigators or a surviving family member that that does something that's amazing or remarkable unfortunately in this case they're just aren't enough details as i said again this is a really well covered case in the media to not have a whole lot of details out there about and some of that's good because i think it protects a lot of her family um, from having stuff out there that that they have to see but at the same time when you're putting together a true crime podcast about it you just have to kind of skim through the details and then do a lot of speculation as i did in this case so Without those details, I guess I'm also missing a lot of what was going on during those six months until her body's found that really there's nothing that jumps out at me. So we'll just end the episode there. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions@gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That is it for today. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.